Good morning. My name is Caleb Liebing, and our passage for today will be from 1 Samuel chapter 26. We'll read the whole chapter together. That's on page 257 in your black chair Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hekelah, opposite Yeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hekelah, opposite Yeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there, come there after him. So David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately, David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were lying down. Saul was lying inside the inner circle of the camp, with the troops camped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech the Hethite and Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zariah, Who will go with me into the camp of Saul? I'll go with you, answered Abishai. That night, David and Abishai came to the troops, and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. David crossed to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance. There was a considerable space between them. Then David shouted to the troops and said to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer, Abner? Who are you who calls to the king, Abner asked. David called to Abner, You're a man, aren't you? Who in Israel is equal to you? Is your equal? So why didn't you protect the Lord, the king, when one of the people came to destroy him? What you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you deserve to die, since you didn't protect your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now look around. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were by his head? Saul recognized David's voice and asked, Is that your voice, my son David? It is my voice, my lord and king, David said. Then he continued, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Now may my lord the king please hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. But if it is people, may they be cursed in the presence of the Lord. For today they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and worship other gods. So don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the Lord's presence. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. Saul responded, I have sinned. Come back, my son David. I will never harm you again because today you've considered, you considered my life precious. I have been a fool. I've committed a grave error. 
David answered, here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Saul said to him, you are blessed, my son, David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went his way and Saul returned home. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, there are thousands of different distractions and concerns, anxieties, fears, all competing for our attention right now. And so we pray that right now you would silence those, that your voice be loud and clear, that our ears would be open, and that our hearts would be ready to receive your word. So, Father, we pray that that you would show up this morning, that you would use uh, your word uh, to grow our faith and to sustain our souls in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Yeah, the waiting is the hardest part. So go the words of Tom Petty's hit single, The Waiting. Maybe that would have been an appropriate song for us to sing this morning. It's a tune most of us are familiar with, but, but even if you missed out on the era of 80s pop rock, the sentiment of the song is something that we can all relate to. For it seems that waiting is, is hardwired into the human experience from waiting on our name to be called at the doctor's office, a slow internet connection, the end of the school year, the call back from the job interview, the Bengals finally to win that elusive Super Bowl, or for our kids to put on their shoes so that we can get to church for, time, for, for once, uh, on time for once. Waiting, it seems, is all part of the game. And yet, as ubiquitous as waiting is for us, it seems that we will do just about anything to avoid it, whether it's paying that extra fee so you can use the TSA pre-check and skip over all those suckers in the regular regular security line at the airport, or or paying for the, the fast pass so you can skip over that long line at Disney, or revving our engines past that car that took just a little too long to get going when the light turned green. Anything that slows us down and makes us wait, we are just going to knock right out of the way. This is just one of the things that makes a passage like 1 Samuel 26 and 27 so perplexing for us. For here we find David given another golden opportunity to to take the kingdom for himself. And, And yet, rather than rushing to action as we might expect, David chooses inaction. And instead of putting a swift end to all his struggles, David seems to let the opportunity pass him by once again. Now, if you're new to our study in 1 Samuel, the book tells the story of how the people of Israel are transformed into this formidable monarchy uh, under their first king, Saul. But Saul proves to be a, a, a rather pathetic 
king. And so the Lord raises up this young shepherd boy from Bethlehem named David. And as David begins to experience blessing from the Lord, Saul begins to seethe with jealousy in his heart toward this young upstart. And so he seeks to put David to death. And for about the last eight chapters of the book, David has been on the run from Saul. And over the last two chapters, we've seen David confronted with various tests while hiding out in the wilderness. It's as if the Lord is putting David through his own wilderness temptations before he hands him the throne. So in chapter 24, David's handed a a golden opportunity in the cave to, to put Saul to death, but he refuses to take the kingdom by force. And then again, in in chapter 25, which we looked at last week, we saw David's run-in with the full Nabal. And yet David listens to the words of Nabal's wife, Abigail, and stops himself from seeking vengeance through bloodshed. Well, as we come to chapter 26, we find David with uh, facing his third wilderness temptation, which is going to be followed by a, a time of exile in chapter 27. And as we come to these two chapters, we're confronted with something of a conundrum with David. For in chapter 26, we find David at some of his best. And yet as we turn to chapter 27, we find David just at some of his absolute worst. And I think we can can sum up the main point of these two chapters like this. Rest in the Lord's providence while you wait on his hand of deliverance. Rest in the Lord's providence while you wait on his hand of deliverance. So first we're going to look at how David does this well in chapter 26, as we find his heart at rest in the Lord's providence. That's going to be point number one, a heart at rest. But then we're going to look at chapter 27, and we're going to think about what causes David to stop resting and to start working for his own deliverance with his own hands. So that's going to be point number two, a heart at work. All right, so point number one, a heart at rest. So in verses one to five of chapter, chapter 26, the narrator is basically, basically going to set the scene for us. In verse one, the Ziphites once again betray the location of David's hideout in the hills to Saul. And so Saul quickly gathers 3,000 of his most elite troops to to hunt him down. And this should surprise us because back at the conclusion of chapter 24, Saul had appeared to to bury the hatchet with David. And yet here we find him here at the beginning of chapter 26, amassing his army again. So David sends out spies to confirm the intel that he's received. and, And then David waits for night and goes himself to set eyes on Saul's camp. And And he finds Saul and the commander of his army, Abner, sound asleep in the middle of their camp with with all the troops snoozing in a circle around them, kind of like a dartboard with Saul smack dab in the bullseye. And so David draws up this bold plan. He looks at his bros, Ahimelech and Abishai, and says, which one of you are going down with me into Saul's camp? And Abishai, probably thinking he and David are are, are going to form this two-man hit squad, he quickly volunteers, and so the two tiptoe down into Saul's camp. 
and what has all of the, the, the makings for an amazing action movie filled with stealth and, and bloodshed, from this point forward becomes an almost entirely dialogue-driven character study. The rest of the chapter, in fact, revolves around three different conversation partners David engages with. First with Abishai in verses 6 to 12, and, and then with Abner in verses 13 to 16, and then with Saul himself in verses 17 to 25. And, and the thing that connects all of these conversations together, the, the, the dominant symbol throughout the entire chapter, is Saul's spear. We, see, we first see Saul's spear in, in verse 7. David and Abishai have successfully infiltrated Saul's camp, and as they find themselves standing over Saul, who is still sleeping like a baby, what do they find stuck in the ground? Saul's spear. The very same spear that, that Saul has been hurling at David for the last eight chapters. Throughout 1 Samuel, we have seen Saul holding onto his spear like it's his scepter. It's become a, a symbol synonymous with his strength and power, a hallmark of his kingdom. But for David, for David, Saul's spear has been a symbol of his suffering and the great injustice that's been done to him. And now, now there it is. There it is, stuck in the ground right next to Saul's snoring head. And all David has to do is take it and thrust it through Saul and all his troubles, all his running, all his anxiety, all his suffering, all his days of hiding out in caves can be over like that. It's as if the Lord himself has handed David the perfect opportunity for this very thing. That's apparently how Abishai reads the situation. Abishai he sees the spear and he instantly wants to kill Saul with it, convinced that this is how God's plan is supposed to play out. And I think if we're honest, we can all sympathize with Abishai here. For we value action. We value initiative and decisiveness. And our natural instinct is to eliminate the obstacles standing in our way as fast as we can. And if we are given the opportunity to drive a spear through the heart of all of our problems, our hands are not going to hesitate. And so we come to this point in the story, and we're kind of whispering along with Abishai here, aren't we? Come on, David. What are you waiting for? Don't just stand there. Do something. Saul's spear is right there, man. The writing is on the wall. The Lord could not make things more clear for you. All you have to do is take it. Just do it. But this isn't the way with David. Rather than giving Abishai the okay to execute Saul, David tells him to stand down. And instead of, of choosing to take Saul's life, he chooses to take his spear and his water bottle. And as we saw in, just as we saw in chapter 25 last week, I think David has learned that God can be trusted to deal with fools and oppressors like Saul when he leaves such matters in God's hands. See, Abishai, he sees the situation only in terms of the expediency and eliminating the threat. 
But David, David sees it in terms of his own obedience and trust in the providence of God. Notice in verse 10, look look at verse 10. Notice how David's trust in the providence of God is going to lead him to envision a number of different ways in which God might deal with Saul that don't include him killing Saul in his sleep. The Lord could dispose of Saul naturally, or he may work some other method, or, or, or he may see that Saul is swept away in battle. The point is, David is not limiting himself to how God would deliver him from Saul's hand. He doesn't see himself as the only means that God could use to take care of his problem. He trusts God to deal with it in his own timing, on his own terms, and in his own way. Brothers and sisters, God is not restricted. He's not restricted to our limited range of possibilities and methods. We often get tunnel vision when God puts us in difficult circumstances. But David, David in these verses, he lets his imagination run wild in the big and unbound providence of God. And even though he didn't know how God's providence would would play out in the future, he knew God required his obedience in the present. Though David didn't finally know how the Lord was going to deliver him from Saul, he knew, he knew that the Lord didn't want him to kill him. All of us at some point in our Christian life are going to face situations in which we won't know how the Lord will finally bring about relief and deliverance for us. So maybe it's a hopeless marriage that you feel stuck in and you're ready to call it quits. Or maybe there's a situation at work or at school and you're not being recognized for the honor or the promotion that you deserve. And so you decide it's time to cut a few corners and force the issue. But friends, David is teaching us right here that even when the way forward seems unclear to us, the way forward always requires obedience to God. But of course, this is all easier said than done, right? I mean, it is so hard, so hard for us to wait on the Lord, especially in times of uncertainty and hardship. We want all of life's most difficult dilemmas untangled as quickly as possible in about 30 minutes or less. And if the If the Lord appears to give us a way out of our suffering, if he just cracks that door open, even just a sliver, then we are quick to kick that thing straight off of its hinges. And yet God calls his people to wait. Waiting, in fact, seems to be the hallmark of the Christian life, the very posture of his people. So think of the way Sarah And Abraham waited all those years for Isaac to be born. The way Jacob had to wait for Rachel. The way Joseph had to wait for all those years in prison. The way Israel had to wait for God to deliver them out of Pharaoh's hand. And then the way they had to wait 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. The way all of God's people throughout the ages have 
have had to wait for that promised seed of the woman who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. The way creation itself is waiting to be released from its own bondage. The the way Christ himself had to wait before he could ascend that cross. And the way he had to wait three days before his resurrection from the grave. The way we right now are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our own bodies, and the way all the ransomed church of God is waiting for the day when we will be saved to sin no more and our glorious king returns to wipe away every tear from our eyes and bring us home. Friends, God's people wait. Waiting is what we do. The Christian man laid off from his job, praying and waiting for the Lord to provide a new one so that he can care for his family. The Christian parents praying and waiting for God to draw their wayward son to himself in saving faith. The Christian spouse praying and waiting for the Lord to bring about restoration to their broken marriage. The widow waiting to be comforted. The saint whose body has been ransacked by cancer, just waiting for the Lord to finally take her home. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is to wait. It's to wait on God. The Puritans understood this reality very well. That's why they they developed an entire doctrine of waiting that they called God's school of waiting. Our missionary heroes of old, guys like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, they understood it too. They, They spent years, decades, in fact, on the mission field before seeing their first converts. The point is, is that God has baked waiting into the whole Christian experience. And so like David in these verses, we must learn to wait with hearts at rest in God's providence, trusting his hand to deliver us from all our troubles. For how is it, how is it even in the first place that David and Abishai are able to gain unhindered access to the center of Saul's camp? Did you think about that? How can they carry on such an animated theological debate with 3,000 of Israel's navy seals basically asleep at their feet? How, how, how can they snag Saul's spear and his water bottle so effortlessly? What is making Saul so defenseless in the first place even? Well, we get our answer in verse 12. No one saw them. No one knew and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. Brothers and sisters, even when the Lord would have us wait on his hand of deliverance, his providence is already fast at work, working out all things for our good, even when we don't realize it. We can trust him. We can wait on him. Well, in verses 13 to 16, David engages the second of his conversation partners, Saul's commander, Abner. David is going to cross to the other side of the mountain, a considerable distance, which is a smart move, David. 
And then he's going to call out Abner for, for failing to keep watch over Saul. And he's going to lift up Saul's spear and his water jug as proof that nothing is going to be able to keep him from obtaining the kingdom that God has promised to him. And then beginning in verse 17, David's going to engage with his final conversation partner, Saul himself. Saul recognizes, he recognizes David's voice. He's going to call out to him. And then in verses 18 to 20, we find David pleading his innocence and asking Saul what he's done to deserve to be chased down and pursued like this. But David's biggest concern in these verses, it isn't ultimately what it is, whatever it is that's incited Saul. He knows full well that it's not the Lord or, or other people, but that it's Saul's own jealousy. He knows the answer to that question. Now, the major concern for David in, the, in these verses is where Saul's pursuit is eventually going to force him to go. He says in verse 18 that Saul is pushing him to the edges of Israel's borders. And the thought of being banished from the land and cast away from God's presence is simply too much for him to bear. It causes tremendous grief for him. This is what David means by, by the phrase inheritance of the Lord that he, he uses there in verse 18. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel was the Lord's heritage, their inherit, his inheritance. And the promised land uh, was, the, was the place where God uniquely dwelt with his people. And so for David to be cut off from the land, exiled into these pagan territories, was to be cut off from the Ark of the Covenants and, and to be cut off from the public worship of God in the tabernacle. All the atoning sacrifices, all those feasts, all those festivities, uh, the presence of the Lord God himself that was embodied in the people of God, all of that was going to be denied David if he was denied the land. Now, of course, this, this doesn't mean that David thought the Lord was limited to the physical borders of Israel. David knows that God's omnipresent and that he's going to be with him wherever he goes. But he also knew, he also knew that to be shut out of Israel was to be shut out of the tabernacle and to be cut off from the ordinances that God's people celebrated there. So this, this was the last thing that he wanted happening to himself. And yet, how often do we voluntarily cut ourselves off from the corporate gathering of God's people? seeing the local church as something unessential to our growth in Christ. I know for much of my Christian life, this is how I viewed the local church. I thought I could get by by listening to, to sermons from famous Christian pastors on podcasts alone in my dorm room, or reading a book on Christian living here or there, or simply going on a hike with nothing but my Bible. Church was just something extra I could do on the side if I happened to wake up early enough on a Sunday. And even then, it was, it was more about just my personal convenience than it was seeing it as something that I needed to grow as a Christian. I thought Christianity was just about me and, and Jesus. And I think that that attitude that I once had is pretty common among evangelicals today. 
Far too often, we let things like life and sports and work and other activities get in the way of gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. We convince ourselves that as long as we've got a Bible, as long as we've got our prayer list and some good podcasts to listen to, then we're going to be fine spiritually. But David, David in these verses, he wasn't content with that. Gathering with God's people in the tabernacle was essential for him because he knew that God had designed every element of corporate worship to strengthen and to fortify his own faith in God. And it's the same for us. What happens here every Sunday, you you heard Ryan pray for this at the end of the pastoral prayer just a moment ago. What happens here every Sunday when we gather together to sit under the preaching and the reading of God's word, to pray and to sing together and to celebrate God's grace to us through the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, all of it is absolutely essential to our growth as Christians. It's how the Lord intends to revive our hearts, to confirm and to strengthen our faith in him. And this is why one who claims to be a Christian ought to be formally united to Christ's body, which the New Testament tells us is the local church. Friends, David could not stomach the thought of trying to live out his faith in God apart from the public gathering of God's people. What about you? What about you? Do you feel the the necessity of gathering with God's people in the local church, do you feel the necessity of what we are doing right now? Or do you think that you can go at it alone, defined by a a kind of Lone Ranger Christian mentality? Now, friend, I, I hope you see the danger in that. Well, in verse 21, the conversation is gonna continue. And interestingly, Saul seems in these verses to respond with remorse. And the thing is, his words, they seem very sincere. He seems really broken over the damage he's done. But there's an important lesson for us in Saul's words uh, in verse, verse 21. Because while Saul may be sincerely grieved by his sin against David, it really just seems to stop there. At no point in his confession does Saul look heavenward. At at no point does he look to God and say, oh Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. I think Saul, again, is just a striking and sobering example for us of the difference between godly repentance and worldly sorrow. Genuine godly repentance, it always starts with God. It always goes vertical first, and it always results in a true change of heart that gets expressed in a change of behavior. But worldly sorrow, it never makes it down into the depths of the heart. It may mourn the mess of sin, and it may mourn the relationships that get broken, but it never mourns the wreckage that it has caused with the Lord. And it never leads to any real lasting change of heart. In the end, all it proves to be is just a bunch of talk. 
which is why David responds to Saul the way he does in verses 22 and 24. He simply tells Saul to send one of his men to come get his spear, and then instead of of going back with Saul as Saul is going to invite David to do in his confession in the previous verses, David instead casts himself upon the hands of the Lord. And the great sadness of these closing verses is that this is the last time David and Saul will ever see each other. This is the last, the last words they will ever speak to one another. And as they go their separate ways, Saul leaves stripped of his power and confronted with the consequences of his sin. But David, David leaves with a clean conscience and his hope anchored in the Lord. But if David's final words to Saul in chapter 26 show us what it looks like to have a heart at rest in the providence of God, Chapter 27 is going to show us something completely different. For in chapter 27, we no longer see David waiting for the Lord's deliverance. Instead, we find him hard at work scheming and plotting for it. This is going to lead to our second point. Point number two, a heart at work. A heart at work. Now, admittedly, as we come to chapter 27, this can be a very confusing and disorienting passage of Scripture for us. Uh, so here's, here's what I want us to do. I want us to, I want us to read the chapter. Uh, it's only 12 verses long. And then we're just going to walk through it, and we're going to try to put, put the puzzle pieces that we find together. So chapter 27, 1 Samuel. David said to himself, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere, everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish and Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur, as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David re replied, The south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeramalites, the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David's did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. 
Okay. So the chapter starts in verse 1 with David appearing to waver in his faith. The confidence that he'd shown in the Lord's hand back in 26 seems to have evaporated. And now doubt and anxiety about his future have have crept into his heart. And the verb there in verse 1, be swept away, is really important because it's the exact same verb that David used just a few verses ago back in, in 2610 when he tells Abishai that the Lord would take care of Saul, perhaps by allowing him to be swept away in battle. But now, just a few verses later, we find David convinced that Saul is going to be the one sweeping him away. So David comes up with this plan to go down to the land of the Philistines and to seek refuge in Achish, the king of Gath, which he thinks is the only place that he's going to be able to find refuge from Saul. But Gath was enemy-occupied territory. It was the hometown of Goliath. And the last time we saw David in Gath was back in chapter 21, when he acted like a fool around the city, scribbling on walls and drooling all over himself. So David, David going back to Gath and seeking refuge in Achish of all people is the last thing that we would expect David to do here. It would be like at the end of Rocky IV, we see Rocky Balboa leave Philly, move to, uh, to Moscow, and then move in with Ivan Drago. I've been making my way through the Rocky movies again. They're great. I tried to use that illustration with the youth on Wednesday night. They had no idea who Rocky was. It did not land at all, but I thought I'd bring it back for you guys this morning. It just doesn't make any sense what he's doing here. And then in verses five to six, David continues to work out his plan. And so he asks Achish, under the guise of wanting to give him some extra space to move around, if he can be transferred to this outlying town called Ziklag. And while in Ziklag, David's plan takes a rather dark turn. He becomes a kind of mercenary for Achish. David and his men spend their days raiding these bands of uh, of Geshurites and Gerzites and Amalekites, who were actually the enemies of Israel. And when Achish would, would ask who David had raided that day, David would lie to him, telling Achish that he'd actually attacked clans associated with Israel. And so naturally, Achish thinks that David has turned on his own people, and now he's got the great David in his back pocket as his servant. But there's one hitch to David's plan, isn't there? In order to keep his cover from being blown, David's got to cover his tracks. And in order to do that, he can't take any prisoners alive. And so two times we're told in the narrative, verse 9 and verse 11, that whenever David went on one of his raids, he would leave no survivors, killing both the men and the women so that none of them could go back to Achish and tell him what David was really up to out in the desert. And here's the, here's the crazy thing about David's plan. The crazy thing about David's plan is that it works. Saul stops pursuing him. He has this entire city to himself. He's probably finally getting the first good night of sleep he's had in who knows how long. He's getting away with all his deeds in the desert, and Achish is just clueless about the whole thing. Even trust David, the text says. 
So what are we supposed to do with a passage of Scripture like this? I mean, is, is God really blessing David's bad behavior here? Is this really what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart? Even commentators are confused about what to do with David here. Some, some take a more sympathetic approach uh, to the difficult situation that's going to force him to go to Gath. And, and others, other commentators remain neutral about his deadly raids on, any, on Israel's enemies, saying he's just simply finishing the job that, that Saul had left undone back in 1 Samuel 15. We can kind of understand the confusion, right? I mean, we, we, I get it. For the narrator doesn't really offer a lot to us in the way of moral commentary. He doesn't break into the story at any point and, and tell us clearly, this was wrong. David should not have done this. But I think the, the narrator does leave some pretty telling clues for us that are going to paint a very stark contrast between the David that we saw in chapter 26 and the David that we find here in 27. For one, notice where all of this starts. Notice the starting point. Look back at verse 1. Look at those first words in verse 1. David finds a new conversation partner, doesn't he? Starts talking to himself. The Hebrew translation there is literally, but David said in his heart. And we don't know how much time has passed between the end of chapter 26, but what becomes clear as we, we start reading the opening of chapter 27 is that David has spent his time consulting himself and not the Lord about what his next move should be. And we know he wasn't consulting the Lord because nowhere in chapter 27, nowhere in chapter 27 do we see the Lord's name mentioned. Zero references to Yahweh in chapter 27. His name shows up 18 times in chapter 26, but no mention of God whatsoever in chapter 27. The only other place in the entire book of 1 Samuel where God's name isn't mentioned is in chapter 31 when Saul dies. So I don't think we're meant to get the impression that God had sanctioned God's, uh, David's plans here. God had not had a part in drawing up these blueprint, blueprints for David. None of chapter 27 was the Lord's idea. God doesn't tell David to go to Gath. David tells himself to do that. And all his self-talk, all this self-talk leads David to stop waiting on the Lord's deliverance and to start working for his own. His, self, his, his own self-preservation motivates every single move that we see him make in chapter 27. And I think all of this is meant to show us where our hearts will take us if we're not filtering our fears and our anxieties and our worries through the word of God in prayer. I mean, we all, we all talk to ourselves, don't we? We all talk to ourselves, maybe not audibly, but we all carry on conversations with the voice inside of our heads. And just like David, what we let that voice, what we let that voice tell our hearts, say to our hearts, will give shape to the state of our hearts and dictate the decisions that we make. What we let that little voice inside of our head is going to give shape to our hearts and to its condition. 
And so it is worth, it's worth doing an inventory, an audit on that little voice inside your head. Whose voice, whose voice are you allowing to shape the state of your heart? Because here, here is the danger, the real, real deceptive power in all of this. It's that our own voice, when it is informed more by our fears and our sin, will deceive us into thinking that we have finally found safe ground when we are really actually in grave, grave danger. So brothers and sisters, never, never ever believe the lie that all the garbage we fill our minds with won't finally matter to the soul. Because the longer that you entertain all those dark little whispers that we talk with, the more and more they're going to eat away and erode your hope in God. But here, here's the amazing thing about 1 Samuel 27. The amazing thing about 1 Samuel 27, as confusing and as disorienting we may feel in David when we read it, this isn't the end of David's story. God still chooses a sinner like him for his own purposes and glory. David may be overcome with unbelief right here in this chapter, but he doesn't stay there. Not permanently the way we see Saul stay there. But this chapter does remind us, it does remind us that the great and mighty David, the man after God's own heart, this David was still made of the same stuff as you and me. Just like David, we too are guilty of following the counsel of wrong words, of deceiving ourselves and silencing our consciences, of doing whatever it takes to to cover our tracks as we dive headlong further and further into our sin. We are guilty of looking for refuge in all the wrong places and of trying to deliver ourselves instead of waiting on the Lord's hand to work it all out for us. But there's great news. Thanks be to God that he gives us an even greater king than David. One who not only passes his wilderness test, but does so with a perfect score. In Christ, we have a king who suffered perfectly and obeyed perfectly. Like David, Jesus didn't choose to, to fast forward over his life of suffering when he had the opportunity. Instead, he endured the cross and the shame for our sake. And he did so perfectly, never once wavering in unbelief, the son always resting in the providence of his father, always entrusting his life to his hands, even in death. And because this is who Jesus is and what he has done, he is able to save us to the uttermost. And he's able to atone for the sins of imperfect sinners like you and me, if we repent and we turn and trust and put our faith in him. Friends, this, this is the good news of a difficult chapter like 1 Samuel 27. We are all imperfect people, David included, and yet we have a perfect Savior. So look to Jesus. Fly to Jesus 
and take refuge in him. In him, we have a king who is worthy of all our trust, all our hope, all our longings, all of our waiting. And as long as King Jesus is on our side, we don't have to work to earn our salvation. We can rest assured in the Lord's providence while we wait for his hand to deliver us from all our troubles. This is good news. Let's take a moment now to silently consider this passage as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.